or because he did something crazy. You know, and you know, it's not going to appear on my wall, right? And so, because all kinds of weird stuff's out there on Facebook, so I like to sort of control the narrative. You know what I'm saying? I, I like to control what's on my little space there. So I set all that kind of stuff to private, and people, you know, they'll go on there and comment, and I make exceptions, right? Like around my birthday and things like that, because I like the birthday wishes. So, and so, and if I didn't do that, I would get like 75 personal messages. 30 of them would be for people I have no idea who know how to respond to that because somehow on Facebook, I'm friends with a lot of people that I've never met, right? And so you probably are, you probably are as well. Let me imagine for me just for a moment because we don't, uh, you know, I'm, that's, that's my little personal pet peeve, but, you know, we don't, we don't like people just kind of interrupting our lives in public ways and just kind of controlling the narrative and, and sharing things like that maybe. Let me ask you this morning, if you've got social media, think about it this way. If God this morning was going to publicly address you on your social media account, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or whatever it may be, what do you think he might would say? He said, well, I don't have that stuff. Okay. If God were to publicly address you this morning in front of the congregation, right, what do you think he might say? How do you think he might do that? Do you, I mean, we, we all know God, first of all, we need to know God loves us. And I think the one thing that God wants to communicate to all of us is that is his love for us. But, you know, God's love, is, it's a holy love and it's a pure love. And sometimes love requires confrontation. And ultimately, we know God's not just a God of love. He's a holy God and he's a just God. And so what, what might God say to you this morning if he were to address you publicly? I ask that question because he is going to publicly address, forget writing on a social media post, he is going to literally write on a wall this morning uh, for the king of Babylon in a way that all the important people in Babylon can see it. He's going to render his judgment over that king and over that kingdom for all to see in a very public way. And it's a reminder for us that every single one of us is ultimately going to give an account to God, that, we're gonna, that there is one who, who, who sees us, who knows us, and ultimately we give an account to, and that he is holy. And it gives us a very vivid picture of that this morning. That ultimately, no matter what we want people to think about us, no matter how we've kind of controlled what people think about us or controlled what they uh, uh, speak about us, that at the end of the day, there is one who's going to render a verdict over our life, and what he says about us is what's going to stick, right? And not, it's not what we think or what others think that matters. What ultimately matters is what God says. What does God have to say? And we get this happening in the life of King Belshazzar this morning in Daniel chapter 5, and it's a reminder for us of God's own verdict over our own lives as we talk about the unshakable judgment of God. God's judgment is a certainty. God is the judge of the universe. Judgment day is coming, and God is very concerned about our lives, and he renders a verdict over every life. And so it's an incredible reminder for us this morning and an intense portrayal of it here in Daniel 5. So look with me. Daniel 5, we're going to read the whole chapter, but we're not going to read it all at once. So I'm going to read, and I'm going to kind of give you our takeaways as we go, as we talk about this unshakable judgment of God. And I'm going to go ahead and give you the points right now, okay, because they're real simple. But we're going to talk about this morning the fact that God sees, God sins, and God judges, okay? Because that we see that narrative in this, in this passage, but it's also kind of a reminder we're going to show you, I'm going to tell you at the end, of the meta-narrative of Scripture, okay, uh, of, of God's interaction with humanity. God sees, God sins, God judges. And so look with me, Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. 
Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Understandable. Verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. So let's pause here. Let me give you the context of what's happening because a lot has changed. When we left off last week in Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was king and we saw him be greatly humbled in his pride and, and he basically lives like and thinks like he's an animal for about seven years and then God ultimately restores his mind, restores his kingdom and it's just an incredible picture of how God can humble the proud. And, so, and then we pick up in Daniel 5 and there's a new king. And the interesting thing is, um, history, at first, uh, we, it was, people thought there was, a, a miscon- there was something wrong with the Bible here because it mentions this king, but this king wasn't mentioned in some of the histories originally around Babylon. And then, and then later, there was actually more things that, uh, that were found that, that alluded to and told us how this king came into existence here in, in, in this situation. This is about 20 years, 23 or so, after the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's several years after chapter 4. And so, and in this particular time, uh, Belshazzar is the son of King Nabonidus. Now, that's how I say it. Uh, there might be better ways to say that name. It sounds like something you need to put ointment on to cure. But, you know, if you have Nabonidus, you know, check out this cream. And, but anyway, uh, this particular king, Nabonidus, he, he, he was like a, he let his son kind of co-rule with him is what we have found out through history. And there was a season where he kind of fell on, on the outs with the people and he actually ended up leaving the kingdom, leaving Babylon for about 10 years. And during that time, his son had to step up and rule. And so that's how you kind of end up with this kind of confusion in history we have since found out through other writings and things like that. And so um, this is an incredible picture because there are things that are written um, in Greek culture and things like that, and other cultures telling us about the fall of Babylon, and so much of it lines up perfectly with what's happening here and the things that the Bible doesn't tell us, okay? And so uh, the time is about 539 BC, and that was the time of the fall of Babylon, and that's, so that's the time period that we, that we have here. And um, most likely, a lot of scholars believe that this particular king, Belshazzar, that, that he would have been the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, that a lot, of, a lot believe that Nabonidus married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, okay? So that would, he would have been like his son-in-law. Now, a lot of different viewpoints on that. That's not, we can't really necessarily say that that's for certain true, but so when it uses the phrase that, he was, that Nebuchadnezzar was his father, in their culture and that language, it didn't necessarily mean that he was his literal father. It could mean, one, that he was his predecessor, which he certainly was. It could also mean he was his grandfather or great-grandfather or something like that, and many believe that he was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, 
Historians outside the Bible note that there was a big festival that took place when Babylon fell. That's what history tells us when you go back and you read people uh, closer to the time period that wrote about the history of this fall, that there was a big festival, a big party going on uh, the night that Babylon was attacked. And some state that it just so happened that there may have been a a special festival and that that was why the Medo-Persians chose to attack that night. They knew that there was a Babylonian festival that night. Some think, maybe, because right before all this, um, Nabonidus had led an army in a fight and had failed to the Medo-Persians and that maybe that his son had heard about this and maybe he's kind of celebrating the fact that now he's going to kind of be the the one true king, so to speak. Or or maybe some believe that he threw this party because they were being besieged on the outside and it was a way to kind of stir morale and confidence. Look, we're so confident we can just throw this big party even though we know people are getting ready to storm the gates. But here's something to note. There was literally no reason for them to be freaked out. Even though they were under attack by the Medo-Persians when we pick up here in chapter 5, it was the safest city on earth. We, we've talked in weeks past about the walls of Babylon that were wide enough for four, uh, two four-horse chariots to pass each other on top of the walls. I, I read somewhere that they were about, people believe they were 87 feet thick and 350 feet high. I mean, this was an incredible fortress. It was considered just impossible to besiege this city. It was the kind of place, uh, one person said that they would have had so much food and so much safety and so much water in that city as a river ran through it that they literally could have just stayed walled up in there for years and withstood the attack. It, It was seemingly the safest city on earth. So why not throw a party when people are attacking? So on this night, knowing they are at war, the king is out, he's throwing this big party. There's at least a thousand people there we see and it gets pretty wild. They're getting drunk. They're living like there's no tomorrow. And this first nine verses, it it reminds us that God sees. God sees our sin. Because what we have in these first nine verses is a picture of someone mocking God. That's what he's doing. The king literally throwing this large party and getting drunk, and, and as, as the alcohol begins to flow through the bloodstream, he begins to get some ideas, right? And generally, the ideas people get when they're drunk, not good ideas. And he says, hey, you know those holy vessels. Now, you might remember in Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, when he besieged Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and he took all the holy vessels, and he brought them back to Babylon, and he kept them nice in a safe little storage, and he didn't have enough sense to not do that. But he did have enough sense to not toy with them once he got them back to Babylon. He kind of kept them safe and locked away. Well, this guy, alcohol's flowing through the bloodstream. He gets an idea. Hey, this will be fun. Let's go get all the holy vessels out of that temple, you know, of the God of the, the Jews. And let's bring them in here and we'll drink out of them. We'll get drunk out of them, right? And you see the picture there. They're all drinking and they're all getting drunk. The concubines, the wives, the men, everybody, the rulers. And they're drinking out of these things. And then they get this idea. And then we'll go and we'll bow before and worship our gods, right? The gods we made out of gold and silver and wood and all that sort of stuff. What's he doing? He's putting on a scene to try to show everybody that our gods... Right, The idols of Babylon are more power and greater than any other god. He probably didn't just do this with, uh, with Daniel's god and the, the god of the Jews. He probably did this with other cultural artifacts and things they had as well. His point was to exalt the gods of Babylon over every other god and to show that he and the gods of Babylon were the real ones in control. He's mocking God. He's mocking the god of the Jews. He's mocking Yahweh. And Galatians 6, 7, the apostle Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. So we need to be reminded, we need to let this passage remind us that God will not be mocked. 
People reap what they sow. The king is acting as though his idols are real and that the God of the Bible is not real and he's got it backwards, right? (laughs) Yahweh is very real and Yahweh sees his sin. And Yahweh's had enough of his sin at this point. And we see in this picture, a picture of immorality, picture of idolatry, picture of blasphemy. You have all that. And then God shows up with the handwriting on the wall, right? It's kind of indicative of the fact of, you know, God, this handwriting, it's like God is writing on the wall is the picture that he's trying to give us here is that God sees all this and God has intervened. We're gonna see what message God has for him this morning. But you've heard phrases like the writing is on the wall or your days are numbered. That comes from Daniel 5. That's where we get those cultural sayings, okay? And so that's the scene that's happening here in this famous Bible passage. So you can imagine with me this morning this huge party. Everybody's living it up. Drunkenness is everywhere. And then all of a sudden, a human hand appears floating on the wall and begins to write something that they're having trouble deciphering. And everybody knows It's not good news. Why? Because floating hands never deliver good news, right? I mean, listen, I I can't imagine a scenario where that would be good. That's going to be terrible news. A floating human hand in a drunken party riding on the wall is not going to be good news. And so the king's literally, his color changes. His knees begin to knock, right? It's the universal sign for, oh, no, okay? He's scared. He's worried. And who wouldn't be freaked out by this? And we've all got our personal little um, things we might do when we're busted or, or when we're caught. My daughter's got hers, right? Whenever I, whenever I catch her or I call her out for something that she's done, her tongue goes right here, right? And, and her head goes down. And so I know when she's lying to me. I know when, she, when I know when she did what I think she did. I know all those sort of things because she's just got this massive tail that, you know, it's like don't be a poker player uh, for more reasons than that, but don't, don't be a poker player. You'll be horrible at it. And, uh, but, we, but this is universal sign, right? Knees knocking, face colored. Uh, it, it's a sign of absolute fear. Why? Because he is now aware that he has done something wrong and that there is a God who sees and who knows his sin. And we need to be reminded this morning that God sees our sin. That God sees our sin. He saw theirs, he sees yours. And just because we're getting away with it, doesn't mean God's okay with it because we're not really getting away with it. Nobody in the history of the world or in the future of the world or in the present day gets away with anything. There is no such thing as getting away with sin. It's never happened. And we'll talk about it here in a little bit, but all of our sin either gets judged in us or it gets judged in Jesus. But no sin goes unjudged. And that's a reminder for us this morning as this king mocked God. You know, and it's amazing. They assume, you know, that there's no real God, that the, that the God of Jesus is not even real, which, which is crazy when you think of some of the stories we've heard. But years have passed, right? And people's mind grows dull from the things that, they, that, they, that had happened years ago and, and the lives of their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents. Things like uh, the, the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar and the being delivered from the fiery furnace, all those sort of things. They, you know, those, those seem like just old wives' tales at this point. But at the end of the day, There is a God and a God who sees, but when people forget that and people live like there is no God or they live like nobody's watching, the human heart is a sinful thing and it's amazing the things we'll do. Uh, There's a... uh, a little show that we've watched, a a magician show on like Netflix or something like that and we were watching it one day 
And this magician plays this massive prank on people. He gets all these people together in this place and he does these magic tricks to make people think he can make people disappear. And so then when people wander up, they're not in on the trick, right? They're not in on the trick. And so they think he's actually making people disappear. So when he calls for volunteers, he picks them and he puts them up there. And so you have to watch it, but he he literally makes these guys think they've disappeared. And it's crazy the things they do when it gets in their head because of what they're seeing that people can't see them. And one of them's walking around and he's snooping in people's bags and and he's listening in on conversations because he thinks they can't hear him. He doesn't know they're all in on the prank. And it's just a reminder for us what humanity is like. When we think we can get away with something, when we think we're getting away with it, the things we will do, and Daniel 5 is a reminder for us, we don't get away with it. God sees it. This king didn't get away with it. Babylon didn't get away with their sins. Neither do we. Look at verse 10. Let's read verses 10 through 17. So you got this scene going on and then nobody can understand what's written on the wall. He's brought in all their worldly enchanters, all their magicians, all the people that would interpret dreams for him. They've all failed. Verse 10, the queen. Now this would have been probably the the queen mother, which was most likely his grandmother, uh, possibly his mother. But she comes in and because of the words of the king and his lords came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, oh king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belshazzar. Their names are very similar. It's one of the reasons he's referred to as Daniel so much here. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you now. The wise men, the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and to make known to me its interpretation but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Let's pause here. The, the king has offered this huge reward, right, including third place in his kingdom. Once again, the world has come. They failed. Now they turn to Daniel. We've seen this in other chapters where Daniel's the only one that can give the interpretation because he's actually gifted by a real God with the ability to do this. And at this point, Daniel's gotten older. He no longer has the esteemed position within the kingdom he once had. He's older in age and doesn't carry the favor with this administration that he did with Nebuchadnezzar's administration, which had died 20 plus years ago. But in this scene, we are reminded that God sends. God sends ambassadors into the world. He sends his ambassadors into the world. He sends his people as ambassadors into the world to represent him. And Daniel is a stark picture of that. Daniel was abducted and taken from home, but... God has a plan for Daniel. He's been using Daniel to bear witness to him in the midst of this sinful kingdom of Babylon. 
God still does this today. He he sends his people into the world to represent him into the world. He sends us into a broken and sinful culture and broken and sinful cities and broken and sinful countries and broken and sinful places. Why? To represent him in this world. So God looks at the world, right? He sees the sin. And listen, and and he he renders judgment. The Bible stands says in our sin apart from Christ that we actually stand condemned, which is, you know, that's pretty heavy. And and, we, and the Bible tells us judgment is coming, but in the midst of all that, God sins. He sends people, his people into the world to warn people and to proclaim to people and to speak the truth to people. Notice here Daniel's reputation as God's ambassador, the queen says of him she, she reminds him of that. She says his, he has a, basically saying he has a reputation as, as a godly individual. She, he's different. He stands out. She says it's like the spirit of the holy gods is in him. This polygamous, idolatrous person, that's just all the thing that they know how to say it, to put it in their words. It's, it's like the spirit of the holy gods is in him. She says he ha- it's like he has light in him. He has understanding in him. He has wisdom in him. And well, we know it's because he's been gifted and, and used by God and he has such integrity and we'll see his integrity next week in Daniel chapter six, but he lives in such a way and he's used by God in such a way in the midst of this culture that his reputation precedes him. And he had a reputation as as an ambassador for his God. They, nobody wondered who Daniel worshipped. Nobody wondered where he stood on the issues. No, D- D- Daniel wasn't fuzzy. D- Daniel had a reputation for being one who had this, he was different. He was different than the other people. He was different than all the other enchanters. And here we are, 20-something years kind of after active service for him. And he still has this reputation. And he gets this kind of this other, this new chance to, to serve. He was a true ambassador of another kingdom living in the perverse kingdom of Babylon. That's what we're all called to be. Uh, Like Daniel, we're called to be representatives of a heavenly kingdom to whatever kingdom we're a part of on earth. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says it this way. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Ambassadors for Christ. God appealing to the lost world through us. That's what Paul tells us. You know, in Roman times, an ambassador uh, was someone who was sent whenever, whenever Rome would conquer like a new place, they would send as many as 10 ambassadors to that place to kind of set up the rule. They would go in there and they would live in the land. They would carry the king's laws and the king's commands and the king's words into that place and represent the kingdom of Rome, represent, rep, rep, represent um, the king uh, and Caesar in that new place. And he would send these people in there to kind of institute this, this new government, to be his representatives. And that's kind of a picture of what we see of what Daniel is doing here. He's in this godless place, but he represents the one true God. And so whenever he's called upon and given opportunity, he points to the truth, and he points to God. He points to Yahweh, and he speaks the truth. He does it in love, he does it in kindness, but he knows his ultimate authority is not Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or whoever's in authority there in Babylon, but the God of heaven. And that's what believers are supposed to be like. We're supposed to be like these ambassadors, like Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians 5. You know, these ambassadors in Roman times in the New Testament, they were foreigners, representatives, and messengers all at the same time. They they were sent from Rome to this new land that wasn't their home, right? So they'd come from another place. At the same time, they, they carry the king's authority and the representatives of him, and they carry his message. And in the same way today, believers 
It's like we're foreigners. We're, in, we're like in a foreign land. We've been, we've been sent. We, we, we all, our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, the Bible tells us. We, we represent another kingdom. We're, we're, we're Christ's representatives on earth. We're, he, we're the shine, his light. We're called the, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And our message is ultimately his message. It's his message that we must bear. You know, we're just the, you know, you've heard it said, we're just the paper boy. We don't, we're not the author, we're not the writer, we're not the editor. We just take the paper and we just deliver the news. That's all we are. That's all I get to do this morning, right? I, I don't get to, you know, to edit what God says or God doesn't need an editor, right? I, I just, we're just paper boys. We're just delivering the news. That's all Daniel was. So he, he tells the king, he goes, keep your stuff. I'll just tell you what it says. God has spoken, and it, what it says is what it says. I, I, all I can tell you is what it says, and that's what Daniel does, and, and that's what we're called to be, is, is faithful ambassadors for Christ. And he turns down the reward here. We're going to see in a little bit. At the end, he's going to accept the reward. But he turns it down here because he doesn't want the king or anyone else to think that, that he can be bought or influenced. He doesn't want him to think that his interpretation of what's written on the wall is any way being influenced by a reward. He, he wants them to know, I'm just going to tell you what it says. And man, Daniel's just an incredible picture of light in a dark place. She even says, it's like he's got light in him. You know, Philippians 2, 14 through 16 says this about believers in Christ. Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling or disputing that we may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, we may be, Paul would say he may be proud that he did not run in vain or, or labor in vain, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. And Daniel is like an Old Testament picture of that verse. Shining as a light, representing God's kingdom. And it's a, a picture of what we're supposed to be in our culture and in our world. Because listen, every culture, I don't care if it's Western civilization, Eastern civilization, I don't care what part of the world you go to, every culture is corrupt and broken and filled with sin. And believers have to represent Christ in whatever culture we're called into. We're in our own Babylon. And we're called to represent Christ just as Daniel represented Yahweh here in, and represented God and his kingdom here in Daniel 5. You know, Daniel here at this point has been relegated to the bench. <laughs> you know, no stories. 20-something years since Nebuchadnezzar's death, no stories of Daniel coming in and serving the king or anything like that. He's been relegated to the bench. He, he no longer has the opportunities he once did. The, the, he, doesn't have, he doesn't curry the favor. These stories of Daniel have kind of been forgotten by some, and so he no longer has the opportunity, but, but he stayed faithful, waited for his opportunity, and when he got his opportunity, he steps up to the plate, he swings the bat, he hits a home run. He just does what he's supposed to do which is represent the kingdom. You know, there are times in our life and in seasons of life and times in our culture where believers are walked over, looked over, pushed aside. You may be ignored. You may feel like you have less opportunities or whatever. But at the end of the day, we stay faithful because we never know when the opportunity is gonna come. This week may be the week where that person in wor at work has a question for you about Christ or the gospel or God's word. That person you've been praying for that has, wants to have nothing to do with what you believe, this may be the week where you get the opportunity. Are we ready? Right? 
This may be the week where that family member you've been trying to invite to church all of a sudden wants to come to church, right? This may be the week. We don't know when opportunities to serve, when to share, when to represent Christ. We don't know when these opportunities are going to come. This may be the week where God intersects your life with someone who needs his compassion, his encouragement, his love in their life, needs his gospel shared with them. This may be the week. Daniel waited 20-something years for another opportunity to represent in a public way, in this particular instance, his true king. And when he got the opportunity, he was faithful. Look at verse 18. Daniel says to him, he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him, feared before Nebuchadnezzar, whom he would, whom, he would, whom Nebuchadnezzar would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingdomly throne, kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him. That was Daniel 4 last week. Verse 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. Chain of gold was put around his neck and the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, the Babylonian king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. See, Daniel takes the time here to remind the king of Nebuchadnezzar and how he was humbled by God. He was likely a boy and a teenager growing up when those things happened. He witnessed them, he saw them. It would have been well known when the king of Babylon lost his mind basically for seven years and lived like an animal. It would have, this, that's the stuff legends are made of, right? People would have known about this. He, he would have seen this happen, likely as extended family of the king, would have known all about it, would have known about the stories of Daniel, would have had these stories shared with him. It was well known in their culture and yet he ignored it all. He ignored the warnings. He ignored he ignored how God, had, how, how God had humbled the proud in the past. And, and rather than learning from that, he, he, just, he just exalted his heart against God. And so in the English translation here, he's, the writing on the wall basically is numbered, weighed, divided. 
That's what the words mean. God has numbered the days of your reign and it's coming to an end right now. You have been weighed and found wanting, right? You've heard of that phrase before, right here. Divided out, your kingdom is divided. It's being destroyed, it's being broken up, it's being given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the king was killed. The story goes, history tells us that since the walls were too formidable to scale or to get through, the army diverted the water from the Euphrates River that that flowed under the walls and flowed into the city. And so since there was a canal that had been dug, right? And and since the the water was lower, since they kind of dammed it off where the water couldn't flow through there and the water got lower, they just walked under the walls. The walls that couldn't be scaled and the walls that couldn't be gone through because they were 87 feet thick and 350 feet high, since they couldn't get through the walls, they just went under the walls. And it was pretty easy to do because all the leaders in town were drunk, right? If they if they'd been paying attention, it'd probably been pretty easy to take them out as they marched in under the walls. And so Babylon falls victim to its own pride. And that night, Babylon falls and the rest is history. And the next kingdom comes along just as God said it would in Daniel 2. The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Babylon, it has fallen and the next one is coming and it's the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And this is a reminder for us, number three, that God judges. God will judge the world. Every person ultimately in every kingdom gives an account to the king. And here we have a picture of a temporal judgment, right? uh, Over someone's life at that particular moment. But it points us ahead to the final judgment. It's a reminder of a greater judgment that's coming. That every person, all of us are going to give an account one day to God. Some people don't like to think about that, right? Like, oh, preacher, that's that's hell, fire, brimstone stuff, right? You're just trying to to scare us. That's not the point at all. It's just we have to say what's true, right? We, We can't take what's in the Bible that we like and take what people don't like and put over here and just, it, it, the Bible's not a buffet, right? You can't treat it that way. It's not, it's not a big ice cream buffet and you go, well, I don't like sprinkles, so I don't want sprinkles. I want a healthy Sunday, right? So I'm gonna put fruit in my yogurt. You, you can't do that. You just have to take everything that's in it, right? It's, it's just all there. It's either all truth or no truth. And here, the reminder for us is that the God of the Bible who, yes, loves us and, yes, has amazing grace that we sing about is a holy judge that will judge the world. And there is no person who ever lived or ever will live who will not give an account to him. And that's an incredible encouragement to us if, you're, if you fall victim to injustice, <laughs> to know that ultimately every injustice gets settled in heaven. That ultimately that there is a God who rules and judges, but it's also a warning to us that none of us are above answering to God. It's a just judgment. You know, the king of Babylon here, he got what he deserved. He did. He failed to honor God, as Daniel said. He chose to worship idols and to mock God. So God's judgment was just. None of us, by the way, deserve anything better than God's judgment. God doesn't owe me and you anything. He doesn't owe us anything. We too have done immoral things, blasphemous things, said blasphemous things, done idolatrous things. We deserve God's just judgment. This is he did. As Daniel says it, this king chose the gods who couldn't see or know, but the God who gave him breath, the creator, he did not honor. Now tell me how many times you did that this week. We do it, right? We, we, we choose to honor 
false gods like pleasure and security and wealth and all these other things and to ignore many times the God who gave us breath and who created us. And that's the very thing he's being judged for is the very thing that we've all done. And his temporal judgment here is reminding us that we're all gonna give an account to God one day. And it will be just because we're all sinners. Right? All of us. There's not one of us without sin. And this judgment, it was foretold about. I didn't tell you that until now, but this was prophesied. Daniel 8 tells us that it was recorded in the third year of this king's reign, Daniel prophesied the fall of the kingdom to the Medo-Persians. In fact, if you go back in Isaiah, it talks about a king that was gonna come along named Cyrus, and that prophecy about King Cyrus that was gonna come into the picture, who we see here, this ruler named Cyrus, right? That prophecy was given 150 years before all of this, before the guy was even born. In other words, this day was a long time coming. They had time, there had been time to repent. There had been time to get right. They, they had the presence of God's people there in their culture. God had done miraculous things there before their eyes. But one king after another rejected God and the entire people just remained in their idolatrous ways. And then finally judgment falls. And it was a judgment that they knew was coming. Or they should have if they had heeded what Daniel had prophesied years before. And we know that the Bible tells us that God is going to judge the world. It's, it's written throughout the scriptures. We read to you a passage, Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That, that word means to turn, to change your mind, to turn away from you and from sin and to, to turn towards God. It says, because, here's why. Here's why everybody needs to repent, it says. It says, because God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world by righteousness. That's gonna be the standard. Either you're righteous or you're unrighteous. The standard is righteousness. By a man whom he has appointed. So God's gonna judge the world. He's gonna judge it through a man and God has appointed who the man's gonna be. Well, who's that man gonna be? Well, of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's gonna be Jesus, right? The resurrection changes everything. If we wanna take everything else in the Bible and we wanna push it aside, okay, okay, you gotta deal with the resurrection because if the resurrection is real, it changes everything. And here, Paul is reminding those he was preaching to in Acts. That the resurrection reminds us and points to the fact that the one who has defeated death and has been raised from the dead and can give you power over sin, death, and hell, that same one is going to judge the world. And the standard is going to be righteousness because he is the very embodiment of righteousness. Hebrews 9.27 says it this way, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Revelation 20 speaks to God's judgment. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks to God's judgment. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that there is coming a day when people give an account to the God of heaven. And that judgment, it's coming, and that judgment is final. It's, it's final. The finality of this chapter is a reminder of that. It just ends, and it just says, he died. <laughs> he died that night. And then we're dealing with a different king in a different situation when you get to Daniel 6. This moves on. Just a, there's a finality to it, a swiftness to it. It's haunting. And it reminds us of the finality of God's judgment, that when we die, it's over. And one day, we will, all that will ultimately matter is whether we are ready to stand before the God of heaven. And it's a big warning for everyone in light of God's judgment. To learn from the mistakes of others, first of all, right? I mean... 
He had seen God humble Nebuchadnezzar. They had heard, I mean, the story, and he didn't learn anything from it, right? He just continues in wanton rebellion and idolatry. He's heard the stories. He's seen the scenes. He knows. He just rejects and continues to go this way and doesn't learn anything. It's kind of like this. If you're going down the interstate at 85 miles an hour in a 70 and you keep seeing people get pulled over, you'd think at some point you'd pump the brakes, right? He doesn't pump the brakes, He's just arrogant. Anyway, he, he probably assumes this. God humbled him and he gave him another chance. If you read those first five chapters, how patient is God with Nebuchadnezzar? And he presumes that he's got a long leash too, maybe. I don't know. And God is patient. He is patient. But he's been king for years. He's been acting this way for years. Babylon has been acting this way for years. And, and listen, to whom much is given as much is expected. He had more of a witness of God's people and of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bore out before him for his entire life. He had seen the stories of what had happened in Nebuchadnezzar. More had been given to him and much was expected and he had no idea how long the leash was. But actually here we see it was over just like that. Because when we presume upon the grace of God, we are presuming very wrongly. We don't assume just because someone else gave their life to Christ at 70 and finally repented of their sins and trusted Christ that you're gonna have to your 70 or 80 or 90 or to some deathbed conversion. Don't assume that. Don't assume that of your loved ones. Don't assume that of the people you love that need Christ, that they've got years. They might not have seconds. We have no idea. And this is a reminder to us of that, that there's a finality to God's judgment that's coming and we don't need to presume upon his grace. Don't assume you or your loved ones have plenty of time. We may feel safe within the walls of our life. We may feel secure. But we don't know. We don't know. But what we can know is that there is a just judge that we've got to give an account to. Now let me give you the good news. The good news is how this text points us to Jesus. I told you, God sees, God sends, God judges, and we see that here. He sees their sin. He sends the handwriting on the wall. He sends Daniel to tell him what he said, and we're reminded of Daniel's presence there, pointing the people to Yahweh for all those years, and then God's judgment is rendered, and the kingdom falls that night, and the man dies. And it's a reminder to me of the meta-narrative of the Bible, that yes, God made us, and he loves us. He made us in his image, and he loves us, and he created us for his glory, but what? We've sinned and rebelled against God. And ever since Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when we see that original creation account and the fall account, we have reminded throughout the scriptures, starting with Adam and Eve, that God sees our sin. And Adam and Eve, they tried to hide with fig leaves and hide behind bushes and all that kind of stuff, but God saw them. God sees our sin. And we're reminded that God has sent one better than Daniel. You know, Daniel, he comes, and all he's got in this story is bad news. Right? I mean, it's just bad news. Okay, I'm gonna tell you what it says. What does it say? You're gonna die right? It's over. That's what it says. Bad news. There's like literally no good news there. He doesn't tell him, but if you'll repent, nope, it's over. God's decided. Sorry. What if I repent right now? It's over. Kingdom's gone. You die tonight. All bad news. The good news for us is that one came after Daniel and he comes bearing good news, right? The Lord Jesus, he comes and he comes and he says what? Repent and believe the good news and he embodies the good news. He accomplishes the good news. In fact, there is good news because he came. Because God sent his son, the God-man, who came from another kingdom to a godless world. 
and lived a sinless life in the midst of a sinful world. And on the cross, the Bible tells us he bore our sin in his body and he did what? He bore the judgment we deserve on the cross. He was weighed with our sin. And now, if we turn from our sin and embrace Christ as Lord and as Savior, believing he died for us and rose again, the Bible tells us that instead of being weighed and found wanting like this king, we'll be weighed with the righteousness of Christ. And God will look on us like he looks on his very son, Jesus, beloved and righteous and sinless. It's a free gift that's offered to everyone. We just have to repent and believe the gospel. The Bible says if we'll turn from our sin to Jesus... Man, listen, every single one of us in the room, our sin gets judged in us or it gets judged in Jesus. So either you can receive the fact that God punished your sin in Jesus on the cross when his wrath fell on his son and Jesus willingly laid down his life for you, or we can reject that offer, refuse to turn and follow Christ, and we can stand before God and give an account alone for every sin we've ever committed. And I'm grateful that one day I'll stand before God, but the Bible tells me I have an advocate. I have a lawyer. I have one who came and died and rose again, and he's gonna stand with me, and he's gonna say, this one's mine. He's covered by my blood. He, he, and I will be looked at with the very righteousness of Christ, not the unrighteousness that's been in my life. And that's the truth for anybody who turns from their sin and receives Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's ultimately what this picture is pointing us towards. You know, I love the end of the story when after Daniel rejected the gifts, he then receives it. First of all, it's funny to me but, you know, in a weird way because it was worth nothing. The kingdom fell that night. Babylon's over. <laughs> so uh, third place in what kingdom, right? And Daniel knew that, right? But I think he receives it and he allows it because it gives us a picture at the end of chapter five of this wicked king judged and he perishes. And here's God's servant, crowned and honored. And it's a picture for us that there is coming a day when God's children clothed in his righteousness will receive their inheritance and all that is theirs and those who do not trust Christ will be judged and punished for their sins and the, the difference in stark, just like it is at the end of this passage. And the difference in the two is Jesus and what we do with him. So if you're not a believer this morning, this text is a great reminder for us to not presume upon God's grace. Get right with God today. And for all of us believers in the room, this text is reminder and motive for us that a judgment day is coming and we have been sent into the world to bear the good news that God's son has come and we need to be the light we're called to be. We need to share Christ like we're called to because we are in the middle of God's narrative and we know how the story ends but we just don't know when it's coming. And we've got to be faithful till the end. Let's pray.